Hello and welcome to True Crime People and Places, the podcast where we explore the world of true crime from an academic and personal perspective. I'm Linda Sage, a criminal psychologist with over four decades of experience working with some of the most dangerous individuals in the world. This is a fairly new podcast and we are developing the systems and growing our audience. So we appreciate your support and feedback. This podcast may contain discussions of violence, murder, sexual assault and other topics related to true crime. Listener discretion is advised. If you are sensitive to these topics, please be aware that this podcast may be triggering you. If at any time you feel overwhelmed or distressed, please take a break and seek support from a mental health professional or support organisation. is the podcast of true crime people and places i'm linda sage and i have got a fantastic guest with me today dave thomason is a detective sergeant at the full stalking spoc at the harm reduction unit with the cheshire constabulary so dave we start off with some letters there would you like to just sort of say what that is to start with yeah sure thanks for having me linda SPOC, Spock, not the Star Trek kind, but it stands for Single Point of Contact. Now, there is a network of stalking Spocks across the country, across England and Wales, certainly. Each police force has a nominated individual, and we meet relatively frequently, but we are a network, and we provide a link between the national stalking working groups from policing as well as the third sector, so organisations like Paladin, the National Stalking Advocacy Service, and one of the charities, the the National Stalking Helpline, which is run by the Susie Lamplew Trust, can also tap into that network of those key individuals in each police force with that specialist knowledge and responsibility around stalking. So that's one of my hats that you mentioned there, being the force spot for Cheshire. And secondly, the harm reduction unit that you mentioned, the HRU, that's my day job, so to speak. So that's the other hat I wear. (laughs) Would you like to just tell us a bit about what the harm reduction unit is? Because I know it's quite unique to to Cheshire and Mm. what your role is with that. Yeah, it is fairly unique. And the easiest way to describe it succinctly is we are an integrated risk management service. And we specialize in stalking cases. Now, when I say integrated, that means that we don't just work alongside other partners, such as health or the NHS and the probation service. They are integrated with us. So if a case, a stalking case comes into us, it doesn't just come into the police and we do our policey bits and we pass it over to an NHS colleague, a psychologist or whatever, and they pass it on to a probation officer to do their bit. It comes into us as a single service. And that's a really important point to make that we all recognise the partners in the harm reduction unit that none of us in isolation can tackle stalking effectively. That we all share a responsibility to do what we can within our respective 
roles and what we are set up to do and what we're equipped to do. Don't forget, you know, there are things that a psychologist can do that I can't do as a police officer and vice versa. That doesn't mean that my work as a police officer shouldn't be psychologically informed or that the psychologist, their approach shouldn't be informed in terms of the law and the powers that exist around tackling stalking. But once we pull those resources and we have that common aim, it's that subtle but significant difference between working with partners, which most people, you know, if people are listening to this podcast and they are aware of other similar multi-agency approaches, well, there is working with partners and there is partnership working. This is a true partnership, recognizing that we all have an important role to play in tackling stalking from different perspectives. So in the harm reduction here, you've got the police, me, three police constables, at the moment, we have a consultant forensic psychologist, a senior forensic practitioner, so a mental health nurse, an occupational therapist. We have probation officers that are aligned with the service covering the whole county. So if somebody comes onto probation who's been convicted with stalking or is stalkerish, you know, they may have been convicted with an assault, but actually the context of that case might be stalking. We have probation officers. We also have two specialist victims advocates, and they are like super advocates. Your listeners might have heard of things like IDVAs, independent domestic violence advocates, who provide practical support, safety planning, and advocacy in the criminal justice system for domestic abuse victims. We also have ISACs, independent stalking advocacy caseworkers. Ours are also trained as ISVAs, independent sexual violence advocates. So they are like super advocates and they've got all this accreditation, but it means that they can provide a really safe and comprehensive service to support victims of stalking who ultimately feel very often either completely powerless. Their belief in a safe world has been shaken to the point where some would rather not be here, quite frankly. And the work that they do is phenomenal. On a daily basis, they are like lifelines. They provide that interface between the investigation and the criminal justice system. It's not just about providing the victim's voice or giving the victim a voice. They're helping to articulate what a victim is going through, what they're experiencing, and communicating that to professionals who quite frankly, don't always get it. So we're a real diverse team in terms of the roles, but you can see how with that comprehensive multi-agency approach, victims are far more likely to get a better experience if they are unfortunate enough to be stalked from a response or a model like this than people working in silos, in isolation, or inconsistently, which is what we tend to see in in other areas um, that aren't lucky lucky enough to have something like this. I think that's a good point that you touched on there. It is perhaps a bit like a postcode lottery to the support and the amount of attention that is actually given specifically to stalking as an individual offence. Yeah, you're right. There is that geographical postcode lottery, but even having this service in Cheshire, if you live in Cheshire, I still can't give that guarantee that that lottery doesn't exist even amongst our police officers or police staff. So you've got the postcode lottery, you know, in another force nearby, they might not have this unit, but you can have an officer who goes out, who gets it, who takes it seriously, 
who understands what stalking is, who validates the victim's experience, who treats that victim in a way that makes them feel like they matter, that they're not stupid, that they're not paranoid, that they're not overreacting. These sort of tropes, they sound sort of stereotypical. And if there are police officers listening to this thinking, well, I don't treat victims like that, I can guarantee 100% there are officers that do, wittingly or unwittingly or otherwise. And that's something we've learned and, and I've become acutely aware of over the years that how we treat stalking victims often matters far more than any outcome. You know, putting a stalker in prison for four weeks somebody who's fixated and obsessed, it may provide temporary respite and absolutely justice and punishment. They are important things, but it does nothing to address the things that drive that stalking behavior, the risk that continues beyond them being released from prison. So there has to be much more than that. And even if we can't get somebody convicted, the fact that somebody has been taken seriously and those other things that I mentioned, people don't forget that. It's very difficult for stalking victims to trust the police. I don't know if you've heard, Linda, there's quite a bit of bad press about the police at the moment in the media. And, you know, that's perhaps a, a different podcast or a different conversation. But if you are already mistrustful of the police for whatever reason, it might be that your perpetrator, you've previously been in a relationship and you've been gaslit and told that the police won't believe you, that you're overreacting, that you're paranoid, that you're mentally ill. Now, if somebody's experienced up to 100 incidents before they pick up the phone, you can understand why if they get the impression that they aren't being taken seriously or that they get an inappropriate response, we potentially lose that person forever. So it's perhaps our one and only opportunity to get it right because there are a few things that the police get involved with that we actually make worse. Stalking is one of them. You know, yeah. the stakes are high. That's one of the things I was going to ask you about, that you have all this specialist knowledge within this hub, but getting it out even through police officers, and as you say, there's a few bad apples everywhere. I mean, if you've got a large amount of employees, some of them are not going to be top notch, and they do have a huge effect on everybody else that's trying to do a good job. Yeah, I think sometimes officers lose sight of the impact that even their presence or attendance can have. We're sort of parachuted into people's lives at the absolute worst of times for something which for officers might even have become, dare I say, routine. You know, officers are going from job to job to job. And I'm not saying this as well, they shouldn't be police officers then if they can't cope. It's not about that. Officers have to compartmentalize things to be able to do their job properly. But I think when it gets to the stage where people lose that basic sense of compassion, that victims very often pick up on that very quickly. Like I say, when people may already be hypervigilant, and it may even be one inadvertently said word or phrase that a victim will hang on that phrase. And sometimes, you know, it's not intended at all. It's just that for victims, that is the number one most serious thing that is happening to them in their life at that time. And I think even with the best will in the world, it's a difficult thing to guarantee that we get it right. And I'm the worst person for putting my foot in it. Don't get me wrong. But I think being candid and open and managing people's expectations of what we can and can't do and really helping people make informed decisions 
about their safety. Now, if an officer doesn't understand stalking or what risk looks like in stalking or indeed what a stalking case is, how on earth can we help victims make decisions if we can't communicate that to them? So there is a massive gap in education, knowledge, culture, stereotypes that exist around stalking amongst police officers, as there is with victims and witnesses as well. So it's a two-pronged thing. We have to educate the police and those charged with protecting people as well as the public at large, because anybody can be a stalking victim. And I think that's uh, something I found quite strange when I started looking into this, was the fact that there's different types of stalking, but it never occurred to me that funding would actually be split between domestic stalking, whether it's a relationship, and a stranger stalking, because the damage to the victim is being done, but to define where you're going to spend money and then say, oh, sorry, can't fit into this category, that seems quite harsh. It is. And you're right that the different types of stalking is important. Not that that is about just putting people into categories or boxes is because it matters. It matters in terms of risk because the type of stalking or rather the context within which stalking takes place tells us about risk. So about half of all stalkers are domestic or rejected stalkers that have previously had some sort of intimate relationship with their victim. Now, they are usually the most violent or the most frequently violent. So you can understand why that emphasis is is there and why, you know, uh, in terms of governance and policy, stalking is very often put alongside domestic abuse. You know, we, we get this. But what about the other half of all stalkers, you know, that may be at risk of being seriously psychologically harmed or physically harmed or even killed? Well, what services, where are their IDVAs and MARACs and charities and policies and governance you know there's another half of all stalking victims there that don't necessarily have that and if you know you have those tropes and stereotypes about what stalking is or what stalking isn't there may be somebody amongst those different typology of stalkers that uh, a victim who is dismissed you know that their case isn't um, perhaps taken as seriously as it ought to be purely because that knowledge and awareness isn't there um, about what, what risk looks like in those cases. Some of the feedback I get from victims particularly, if they tend to go in and report on a regular basis, sometimes they're actually seen as a nuisance. So, you know, they yeah. just be palmed off. Then the problem is that the jigsaw pieces aren't being put together. They take them as one-off incidents rather yeah. than accumulation of events. You're right. And, and it is that cumulative impact over time that really sort of typifies what stalking looks like. This isn't tit for tat. It's not friends falling out over Facebook or an acrimonious split. This is a strategic goal-driven behavior. That, and the important thing is it takes place in a context. And that context is key. Now, if you've got somebody that phones up three times in two months to report a burglary, Well, what is the nature of those burglaries? Is it that high-end electronic equipment is being stolen by the local drug addict who's going to sell it on quickly? Or is it that underwear is being stolen? Now, that's qualitatively different. That's not just three isolated burglaries. And it really shouldn't take much for somebody to go, hang on a minute. This is qualitatively different to what other burglaries look like. And you talk about joining the dots. Well, it's sort of staring you in the face there. But sometimes I think, If we aren't curious or we don't look hard enough, whether that's because the will isn't there or you're right that some victims 
frequently report that they feel like they are being a nuisance because they feel like they are overreacting. Their belief in a safe world is shaken. As I've said, they don't know what's real and what's not in some cases or how stalkers are doing the things that they're able to do. So you're already coming to the police loaded with that. And if you get the operator on the other end of the phone saying, as I've heard said, don't treat us as a diary service the first time that they call the police. Well, is that person ever going to phone back again? Are we even going to be able to join the dots? Yeah. You know, it's uh, we, we have to get it right as early as possible. Like I said, we potentially lose that person forever. You think about other types of crime. I'm not saying it's perfect, but you don't see it happening in the same way that the victim is sometimes almost treated with contempt, you know, as if they are responsible for being stalked, that they have to change, that they should do something differently to stop this from happening. They should come off Facebook or Instagram or change their number. We wouldn't be expected to say that to rape victims. Well, you shouldn't go out. You shouldn't wear a short skirt. And I know these things happen, but you don't see it in the same way. It's almost routine for stalking victims to be told, well, have you thought about blocking the suspect? Oh, thanks very much, officer. There's your uh, thousands of pounds a year justified. Why didn't I? If it were that easy, you know, and it does nothing to address the problem. The stalker's still acting with impunity, free from police intervention, because we thought that the best advice we can give is to block them. Well, I, I could block them, officer, but do you know what? I might be killed. There is a consequence to that action, because if somebody is fixated or obsessed, guess what? They're not going to back off at that point. They will find another way to get through, which might mean close physical proximity, and we've made the situation even worse. So these are the things that we're sort of battling with, you know, and, and have done over the years, these these concepts to um, it's it feels like slow progress at times. But I know it's getting better. I know that people are phoning up now and reporting to the police and using the word stalking. That didn't happen as frequently as it used to. And that's testament to things like your podcast and the focus in the media in getting that education and awareness out there that this isn't romantic it's not sexy it's not something that people desire this is dangerous it's funny you mention about that because obviously you've been around or involved in stalking for a lot of years so it's been around yeah. a long time but before we perhaps thought it was something only celebrities got has there been a lot of change in that time now, this is an age old and i mean really old problem it's given that new name stalking there's evidence of what we probably now call stalking throughout antiquity in roman and greek literature you now you look at it and you think yeah that that's stalking every pop song pretty much ever written is a stalking song you know uh, you think about that they they are about that how dare you dump me uh, i can't live without you uh, what's that one i can't live if, if living is without you uh, harry nilson is it <laughs> whoever it was most pop songs are sort of this life or death, I can't live or I'm not going to let you live without me, I can't go on. Nearly every romantic comedy ever made tells you that persistence pays off. You know, this is in great, if you persist long enough, the usually female will crack and submit to your romantic uh, intentions. And we just sort of lap it up. You can understand why it's sort of seen as acceptable. Those attitudes are changing. Organisations like the Alice Ruggles Trust are doing 
huge amounts of work in schools and education establishments with young people to challenge these dangerous concepts that we see amongst young people and how they form those often early romantic relationships and what healthy and acceptable and those sorts of ideas look like. So it is changing. You know, the first stalking law in the world in California came about in 1990, following the stalking and murder of Rebecca Schaefer, the actress there. So there is that history. And yet celebrities do get stalked. We have cases in Cheshire where public figures are being stalked. And, you know, we often get people say, oh, you know, it's not just celebrities. Well, we know, but celebrities do get stalked and it can be really dangerous for them. So, yes, we know they they may be, uh, in terms of prevalence, it may be less, but it doesn't mean we should equally dismiss it because it happens to other people. It can be really serious for, and, and dangerous for public figures who are stalked. In fact, the, the model the things like the stalking risk profile that we use has a special addendum just to help us assess the risk to public figures because it's recognized you know there's another dimension to them in terms of how a stalker disrupts their life and um, how how that can escalate from a besotted fan to potentially lethal behavior so yes it is changing in terms of that stereotype it's just celebrities but we shouldn't forget that completely i suppose is what i'm trying to say I can't believe how quickly the time has gone for us. I'm sure perhaps we could uh, try and get you back to do part two, three and five. And <laughs> well. yeah. I think it's been absolutely fantastic. And thank you so much for, for being with us and uh, sharing so much information. No worries. Thanks for having me. And for everybody else, thank you very much for joining us. Don't forget, to please share and like any comments. And if you have any thoughts or you've been affected by anything we've been talked about, please get in touch with professionals and get yourself some support as quickly as possible. So from me, I'm going to say cheerio for today and we will see you again next time. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to True Crime People and Places. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. And if you have any suggestions for future topics, please let us know. See you next time.